Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Milton Friedman, perhaps the father of modern neoclassic economics, the man who called Keynesian economics naive, the man who inspired Margaret Thatcher to do what she did. So how did he convince so many people to see things his way? Well, today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen, we debunk Milton Friedman. Uh, well, a bit of fact-checking anyway. How much of what he said actually turned out to be right? I'm Phil Dobby. That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast. Well, if there was one man who turned so many politicians away from Keynesian economics, it was Milton Friedman. Margaret Thatcher once said that he revived the economics of liberty when it had all been but forgotten. He was an intellectual freedom fighter, she said. Well, as you know, he was uh, certainly a fighter for the free market who once said many people want the government to protect the consumer. A much more urgent problem is to protect the consumer from the government. And he coined the phrase, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, of course, you know, unless it's from a food bank, uh, which people are increasingly turning to, perhaps because of the work of Milton Friedman. So just how right was he in all of his thinking? Well, he was, certainly was a long way right, wasn't he? But let's do a bit of fact checking on Friedman, given his thinking has influenced the political regime for several decades now in many parts of the world. And, and interestingly, Steve, until now, perhaps, because Donald Trump isn't following the principles of Friedman. He might be cutting taxes, which obviously Milton Friedman would uh, would promote, but he's also introducing tariffs, which is something Friedman certainly wouldn't be a fan of. No, this is a, a lot of ways in which uh, Friedman's uh, world, uh, as the textbook, hasn't worked so well when you when you whack it into the under the planet, and uh, all these things which are supposed to happen and makes people a bit better off. The whole idea of privatisation is going to make uh, services cheaper and more efficient. Uh, and yes, it'll be a bit painful on the initial stage, but don't worry, it'll all work out beautifully in the future. Yeah. Um, <laughs> tell anybody that who's hopping under a British train versus a European one these days. So um, it, it, it's the the, out, the outcome. But this way, the product has not been as advertised. Well, Emma, on, on tariffs, he said, because uh, he spoke specifically about steel, if the US imported less steel, foreigners would have fewer dollars, which mean they'd have less to spend buying stuff from the US. Uh, and so that would be a bad thing, basically. But the US wouldn't know it, he said, because he talked about things being an invisible way. People wouldn't know what jobs they couldn't have, which is why he says, you know, people support the idea of uh, perhaps putting ta- up tariffs because it seemed to protect, protect the economy. Um, but yeah, yeah, his argument is that no, 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 there's going to be uh, uh, less money going out to people who can then spend that money to buy from the United States. Yeah, I mean, if, if anybody take a macro, neoclassical economist seriously on macroeconomic issues, I might I might have some time for that proposition. But again, it's usually, it, the whole basis of this is the whole theory of comparative advantage, and we've mm. had a couple of hits to that ourselves over time. Uh, but let's just talk on the empirical data. Uh, when you take a look at countries that have successfully industrialised, uh, it is and this includes the United States of America. It is often the case that they'll whack up tariff wall, uh, tariff walls, meaning you can't import the foreign stuff. You're forced to produce it locally, 
Then you put pressure on the locals, whether that's by the size of the domestic market has happened in America or the pressure to compete with uh, uh, with overseas products, as the case with Japan. Uh, that's what leads to the takeoff. And Michael Hudson, one of my you know, great mates and fellow uh, battlers against mainstream delusions, uh, wrote a book called America's Protectionist Takeoff, uh, very strongly empirically based, looking at the, the period when America went from being an agricultural nation to an industrial one, and it was behind tariff walls. Danny Roddick's work has found a similar thing about South Korea, of course, Japan, uh, and Malaysia, and quite a few other countries. Uh, the period when they succeeded was when they did the opposite of what economic theory said would work. Well, he also talked about uh, exchange rates a lot, didn't he? Because, of course, he was uh, instrumental in getting Nixon to uh, float the US exchange rate. And again, uh, that was to do with international trade and trade balance. So he, he argued that trade balances would never get out of kilter if we had a floating exchange rate. So he gave the example, if Japan could produce everything cheaper than the United States, then the US would buy everything from Japan. And the Japanese would buy everything from Japan as well, because that's the cheapest way to do stuff. But then the Japanese would have a swag of US money uh, from having sold stuff to the Americans that the Americans have been buying. And that would be pretty useless to them. So the exchange rate would move until US goods actually became more affordable, which sort of makes sense. What's wrong with that explanation? Well, reality. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Unfortunately, uh, if you look at the level of trade surpluses and deficits we have globally now, uh, the scale of those is greater than at any time when when, when we had uh, serious tariffs. Yeah. So So that that description actually implies that description implies that, in fact, everything is going to reach equilibrium. Yeah, and that's the old hassle, the yeah. classical, you know, uh, they, they've never seen an equilibrium they didn't like. Uh, the only trouble, the equilibrium's never actually existed. I remember having a conversation with a New Zealand treasury economist when they turned down using my Minsky software, despite the fact that the bosses wanted to give it a try. And he's, uh, quote unquote, said, look, I walk down the street and I see equilibrium everywhere. And I said, including in the car yards. He said, yeah. I said, what, you mean there are no cars left in the car yards? And I said, what? And I said, mate, if you're talking equilibrium, you're talking a spot market where the demand is completely equal to the supply and there's no leftover stock the next day. Mm. Have you ever seen an empty car yard? Uh, and they've, you know, that's how, you know, you'd imagine that the conversation went after that. Um, but they fantasise about equilibrium uh, when, when in any dynamic system, any system subject to an external forcing, which is what describes capitalism because without, without the sun shining every day, there wouldn't be anything on the planet. Uh, let alone capitalism, then it's an out of equilibrium. And this whole idea that things will push to equilibrium just is ignoring the the actual forces that give you a dynamic process. So in this example there, what happens then? So the Japanese have been buying American goods. They've got a whole load of American American dollars. What do they do with it if they're not using it to buy American goods? They then industrialise and invest and keep ahead of the Americans so that you continue buying Japanese technology, even though it's more expensive. There is no such thing as a car. There is a, there is an industry called cars where there's numerous different types. No. They grab one particular part of the market. They push it forward. I mean, I remember back and being a kid in the uh, in the early 
late 60s, late 50s, early 60s. And I remember my, my little uh, kindergarten neighbours chatting about that Ford versus Holden. And everybody talked about buying a Japanese car. They laughed at you. Oh, you wouldn't be that piece of junk. Uh, Ten years later, what was the piece of junk? Now, that dynamic over time can mean that Japan continues getting a trade surplus and the price system does not adjust fast enough. Mm. And the vast majority of trading on the financial on the uh, currency markets is financial speculation anyway, 20 to 100 times the scale of what happens with actual physical goods. So, so, they, so they've got all these yeah. US dollars. You say they invested in their, in their own country, but they're investing that many. They've, they've got to move. They've got to buy stuff to do that, and they've got American dollars. So presumably they're buying from America in that case. Well, fundamentally, this is one of my points of contention with MMT, because I agree with them on, on, the, on the monetary analysis of a domestic economy, but they poo-poo this whole thing about running a surplus. And to my way of thinking, uh, trade surplus, when you run a trade surplus, yes, you go, you're going to be getting more American dollars back than you send out to buy, so you accumulate American dollars. You then, what you then do, you whack them at the central bank, and the central bank puts yen in your bank account. And in effect, you're forcing the hand of the central bank to give you local currency, uh, even if the local central bank is caught up with an austerity delusion. And that means you get money to invest and money to money to expand and to develop your industry over time. So you'll grow faster than the country running a trade deficit. Yet this, and that would, yeah. this is fundamental, isn't it, to, to, you know, to the way we have been operating for several decades. I mean, let mm. me give a quote from it, which just to, to tie off this whole thing about trade balances. So long as you have a free exchange rate, which is free to determine uh, the market price of the dollar in terms of the yen, there's no balance of payments problem. There's no sense. I should do it in his voice. There's no, no, there's no sense in which uh, the American industry is in danger of being undercut by foreign industries and destroyed. Um, I don't know. That was a crap impression. But you know what I'm saying. So it's, uh, you know, so uh, I mean, this but this is bullshit, isn't it? It is bullshit. It's turned out to be bullshit. I mean, this is classic neoliberalism. You know, the, the, it reminds me of my favorite joke about Bill Gates. Uh, can I tell a joke? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, Bill, yeah. Bill Jates go, goes to heaven and then knock the gig. He, die, he dies and goes into heaven and gets met by St. Peter at the pearly gates. And uh, St. Peter says, oh, you're special. Uh, you don't, uh, you, you, unlike everybody else coming here, you get a choice, whether you like heaven or whether you like hell. And he goes, well, okay, all right. I think heaven's going to be better, but sure, okay, show me. Well, he goes to heaven and sees all these dudes in white robes sitting around on, on clouds playing harps. And then he goes down to hell and sees this, you know, everybody's naked. There's gorgeous women everywhere. There's uh, rambunctious behavior. Looks fabulous. I'll choose hell, thanks. And the people says, right, off you go. And then he gets down there and finds he's lying on a rack. He's having his skin whipped. There's been vinegar poured into it. And he screams up to St. Peter, what the hell's going on here? And he said, well, that was the advertiser version. <laughs> exactly. It's not exactly what you see on the box. Yeah. No, no uh, it's not, not like anything <laughs> like what the box said, what the theory, the advertising said would do. But I mean, if you, I mean, Freeman take this, t- took this whole thing about, uh, and it, it is all about comparative advantage, isn't it? That's, I mean, the basis behind all of that, this. That's it. He's arguing that's comparative advantage for him, yeah. Which because doesn't make, doesn't distinguish him particularly from other neoclassicals, by the way. Because of this idea that, you know, we're going to have equilibrium uh, and it's all mm-hmm. going to be, uh, you know, the balance of trade will level itself out. He argued that means the U.S. would always have a steel industry. No need for tariffs because there's always going to be a steel industry because basically if you produce steel locally, then you're close to the source of supply, the iron ore. You're close to the fuel you need to uh, to process it, and you're close to the market, whereas interna- internationally sourced steel doesn't have any of that. Obviously, it might be cheaper because of the exchange rate. No, no, no. Sorry, mate. Sorry, 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 sorry. sorry. You're being far too realistic. Um, 
<laughs> no one hit that. That was his argument that all of that happens. You know, locally sourced seal can be cheaper and than internationally yeah. sourced. But inter- well, internationally yeah, sourced steel might be cheaper uh, because of their local conditions. But then the exchange rate is going to adjust that, and that exchange rate means that you're always going to have the benefit locally because you're close to the market, close to the source of steel, and all that sort of stuff. That's how. He, that's how. He, he actually, did you actually write that in his own arguments? Mm. That's a, okay. Because when you look at the theory itself, what it says is that what they call an edgework edgework edgeworth box diagram, showing tastes and uh, production possibilities on the other uh, taste on one one uh, curve like two boomerangs um, and uh, the one boomerang describes people's taste between guns and steel about uh, butter and steel and another one describes the production possibilities between butter and steel and where the two boomerangs kiss uh, that's what the new price ratio is going to be and then international trade opens it up and gives you a better price ratio it's all about price ratios in the theory but when they will try to sell the stuff to people who live in the real world they sometimes make concessions to things that happen there and of course those things are genuine but uh, what has actually happened of course is we now talk about parts of america as the rust belt yeah it's not happening is it the this, the steel industry isn't happening and uh, hence that's why we're we're seeing tariffs put up to try and uh, get it going again yeah but and that- it's also no, there's no necessity of full employment either the other thing they assume the economy is fully employed okay. uh, I, I had a little fight with the with the chief of the productivity commission many decades ago at a conference I organised when he gave us predictions about what was going to happen to a various range of industries with a 25% cut tariffs for cars, textiles, clothing and footwear. And he said, assuming good macroeconomic management. And I asked what that meant. And the answer was, as full employment is maintained despite the tariff change. Now, people think that this stuff takes into account what happens to unemployment if you change the tariff. No, it assumes there's no change to unemployment. Uh, the economy is fully employed. Total bullshit. Uh, the sort of thing you can get away when you're doing your advertising, but, of course, you end up in hell. Right. So another thing you said was a balance of trade uh, deficit can be a good thing and often you do often hear that you know that they're buying more uh we're buying more imports that means uh the economy's going well the domestic economy's going well so he said the u.s has a balance of trade deficit because of foreign investment people are buying u.s bonds for example which is helping the economy grow so that's a good thing uh so if that is the case why would america be worried about the investment from china which is a huge trade deficit for the united states and which has got president trump so riled if you listen to uh, milton freeman he, he wouldn't be the least bit concerned yeah i know again this is just the, the whole uh, thing about uh believing that in the long run everything balances out to zero so again the belief in the neoclassical thinking is if running a trade deficit now it's because you're importing productive goods, which you'll then use to produce the trade surface in the future. Mm. Well, that's, uh, you know, in the long run, that, that works. And in the long run, we're all dead. In the long run, Australia's been doing trade deficits for, what, 40 years. America's been on a continuous trend towards it. Japan and uh, China have had continuous trade surpluses. You know, it just doesn't happen. Again, this is fantasy belief in equilibrium, well, not just at a point in time, but through time. Well, doesn't it balance itself out, actually, that those foreign countries uh, just buy up more of your country? That's what's been happening. And Mm. you end up with a country full of workers and no capitalists, which is, in effect, what's happening with Australia. And it means that if you don't 
uh, get the distribution of income towards you're going bias towards your workers, you're even worse off because you know have, don't have any domestic profit, you don't have any domestic investment. Yeah, and that is what it is is a major problem. Well, that gets back to Milton Freeman's uh, point about you know, well, if you're getting people who are buying a whole load of your goods, they've got um, uh, or you're buying, you know, if, if Japan uh, is selling a lot of stuff to the United States, then Japan uh, has a lot of U.S. dollars. What does it do with the U.S. dollars? Well, you I mean look at what China's doing with it? It's using it to buy bonds in the United States. So it's it's buying up um, government debt, but also buying up bonds in companies as well. So uh, yeah. that's what they're doing with their money. They're buying your country from you. Effectively, in buying shares in the corporations as well. Like a classic for Australia's Vegemite is not owned by an Australian company. Yeah. Uh, Strange so, you wouldn't you know, mention the- that. As a possible yeah. alternative. Yeah. Hmm. So what about uh, countries like Japan dumping goods below cost? And China's been doing this as well. Uh, the unfair competition argument. He said it's a good thing uh, if the Japanese government is so ill-advised to tax its taxpayers in order to send it to us at below cost, TV sets and other things. Uh, then he says, you know, it's uh, we sh- what nation would refuse what he called reverse foreign aid? Yeah. Again, uh, you know, there's a temporary benefit for that, but if it undermines your productive capacity, then at a later stage, uh, you've you've lost an industry, and you won't necessarily get the workers to be employed where they get shifted to later. Joe Stiglitz did some good work on this, I have to say, uh, in his book um, "Globalization and Its Discontents," because he said this was always the argument being made by the World Bank. Uh, that if you liberate people from one industry, they'll move smoothly to another industry. And he said in practice, when he went to check out what happened when some tariff change was changed that made Japanese textiles cheaper than locally produced textiles, he said the textile workers end up in welfare or begging on the streets. It wasn't a case that they uh, smoothed smoothly somewhere else. So again, this, this fantasy belief in smooth movement in capitalism and ignoring that you can't retrain uh, a steel, a, a blast furnace to make clothes, and you can't. When you retrain workers, it takes time, and they might not actually ever have the skills, nor be in the right location. So you start dislocating and destroying communities as well. Was well, that what? It, yeah, I knew you'd look at what happened in the UK, of course, when. Uh you know, Margaret Thatcher closed down the iron and steel industry and the shipbuilding industry in the north of England. Uh, you know, there was uh, huge suffering because it took a, it takes a long time to replace those industries and still haven't been replaced. And is that, so is that the problem with Friedman? It's all short-term thinking. It assumes that equilibrium will somehow be reached and it'll be reached instantaneously with no human suffering in the process. Yeah, it's, it's all microeconomic thinking as well. I mean, the whole argument about you know, getting rid of trade unions is all this belief you have a perfectly competitive a bunch of firms buying off organised labour, and if you get rid of the organised labour, you reduce the you reduce the wage back to what the workers should get, and increase employment as well. And they ignore the fact that in the real world there are you know, organised employers as well as what used to be organised unions. And even according to conventional theory, what's called the theory of the second best, it's a bad idea to abolish either trade unions or monopoly buyers of labour, powerful buyers of labour, if they both exist. Uh, uh, so, so the the theory and the reality again. It's a it's heaven versus hell from from Bill Gates's point of view. So, can we find stuff that Friedman was right about? So, for example, when he got Nixon after twenty five years of uh, of a fixed exchange rate for the US dollar, the idea that it should be floated that was a a good move, surely, wasn't it? Yeah, relatively that was, um, but I would prefer to see bringing in Keynes's idea of a bank call, which is like yeah. an adjustable flow, a fixed rate of exchange. So the whole problem is the American dollar in the first place, and I can't blame that Milton Friedman. That's Harry Dexter White, who was the American negotiator at the uh, 
uh, Bretton Woods conference and turned down, just over, overwhelmed Keynes's argument for a non-national currency to be used for international trade on the basis of we're the biggest country on the planet, we can kick sand in your faces, aren't we great? And I think that's actually a major factor that's led to the destruction of American manufacturing over time. And he was a firm believer that government shouldn't play in the foreign exchange markets to try and moderate currency movements like we see in China. So they shouldn't buy and sell currencies to protect their own domestic currency. I mean, uh, hard to hard to enforce unless you introduce some sort of international law. But I mean, it makes I mean, that that does mess with the, the idea of the floating exchange rate, doesn't it? It messes with the idea of a fixed exchange rate. As much as you, with a fixed exchange rate, you can run out of your own currency in that sense. So you can run out of the, the backing currency you need. And that's what uh, Soros used to blow the uh, English economy and make the beginning of his fortune because he knew that they simply, they, they, he could borrow money to, to, buy, to buy American dollars he didn't actually have in that sense in a limitless way. Whereas there was a limit to how many American dollars the uh, the British could buy themselves with their own uh, with their own currency reserves, they couldn't defend the, the fixed exchange rate. So it, it works. It, it, the floating exchange rate is a good defence against that sort of behaviour. So he's best known perhaps for his quantity theory of money, isn't he? You know this idea yep. that inflation comes from the amount of money that's uh, that's that's in circulation. So it's not necessarily money from the government. Well, if he, what does he mean by this? He says it's not based on the supply of money from governments, but on the demand for that money from consumers. Oh, he his, his theory of money is, uh, that's what the, his idea of helicopter money, what he, the one thing I'll thank him for is using the term helicopter money, which legitimised me talking about it, uh, which would have never have happened otherwise. So he, what he really sees is money is external to the economy. It's not created by the market system. It's created by the government. Mm. And it only expects the rate of inflation uh, of it, it, beyond a certain level. He was actually in favour, by the way. This is what people don't realise. When they don't realise the originals, you don't, re- don't realise this stuff. He was in favour of the money stress by contracting at about 7% per annum. Of contra- the money supply contracting. Contracting. Bus. That's what he wanted. Right. He was, his preferred uh, t- uh, policy, this is in the optimum theory of money, optimum quantity of money paper, uh, we ended up saying a 2 or 3% increase in the money supply was probably politically palatable. But he thought the economically best situation because, because it, it gave... Because it would the increase money. the value of the money. Yeah, that's so right. It would keep, yeah, it would keep prices down, in other words. He was actually in favour of, actually, literally talked about money furnaces, burning money, and he reckoned we should burn <laughs> 7% of it every year. <laughs> that seems a hell of a lot. And and, and, what, and for an inflation rate of what? What was he, so he was doing that because he'd say we'd we'd have a sustainable inflation level if we did that. With deflation, because that was prices would have to be falling in that situation. So, so we'd, be gain, we'd be gaining for the deflation, which, of course, only works if you don't have any private debt. And mm. here we are back in the same old bloody blind spot again. That's uh, the reason why I talk about it so much. You literally didn't even consider that there was private debt going and therefore if you had deflation, your capacity to service that debt would be falling over time while your debts rose in nominal value, right. which is what but gave us got, the Great Depression. But you've got less notes. Each note would be worth more. Yeah, that's the idea. The trouble is at the same time, what are your debts? So your debt's nominal or real? Mm. And uh, Again, the debts are denominated in actual dollars. So what would be happening is that was a 7% real rate of interest on any outstanding debt, which he ignored. Right. So just explain how that influences debt levels then. Because if you owe $100, okay, and you've got to pay 5% interest on it per year, 
or 10% interest, let's say, um, and then the dollar itself is falling at, say, 10% per annum, you're earning 10 one day, 9 the X, uh, eight, eight, you know, a bit less than 8 yeah, yeah, after okay. that. Yeah. Uh, therefore, you can't service your debt. Right. Got it. Okay. All right. So he was also against uh, – I mean, he really was. The, 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 the power of the free market was in everything he, w- he wrote about, wasn't it, really? Yeah. And I think – do you think part of the reason he was so successful and got uh, so many people on his side – is because he was he, he he did have a knack, didn't he? He did a lot of video and TV appearances. He wrote a lot. He was clear in his thinking. I mean, you can argue against it, but he was very clear in his presentation. Perhaps it was because it was so simplistic, and that's why he got so much traction. I mean, if you, if you watch videos, he's he's it's actually quite compelling. You can see you can see through it, but it's but you can understand his logic, and he does it in a, you know in a in a very coherent way. Yeah, it's a major point of being a good media performer. You, you, mm. it, it does have an impact, and he was a very good media performer. Even the fact he looked so quirky uh, was was the thing he actually put in his favour. A bit like, you know, we, don't you if you're, if you're old enough to remember, Brie Santa Maria. Did you ever watch him? No, Mongo Santa Maria, but no, not Brio. No. <laughs> <laughs> he was a right-wing commentator back. He was Tony Abbott's, uh, uh, Tony Abbott's hero. And right. B.A. Santa Maria used to run a regular piece. It was all about commies coming down. You know, gravity was going to cause yellow commies to pour onto the Australian continent. Uh, I always thought it was interesting that gravity meant it went from north, from, the people fell from north to south. Um, but this 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 eye vision uh, was a compelling argument. He was such a compelling personality, how he put it across. And definitely Milton Friedman had that on his side. Well, uh, let's go through some more of his, his theories and comments he made. So just regulations generally, uh, not necessarily talking about money, but regulation regulating any industry like uh, professions like lawyers, accountants, doctors. If you introduce those regulations, then you restrict competition. So that puts up prices. So people end up paying more. They get a worse service as a result. Less regulation has, I'm not sure, you know, I don't know what that means. Like doctors haven't been trained, perhaps. But less regulation has the opposite effect. He says that's the power of the free market. Yeah. Again, there's a, there's a, again, there's a point to which that argument makes sense. You can get totally tied up in red tape, as they say, and certainly working in the university sector is one thing that drove me absolutely crazy and I couldn't wait to get out. Um, so that is a point. But he pushes it too far because, again, let's look at regulations, for example, building cladding. Yeah. Let's make it less expensive. Let's, let's really put it that way. It's nothing wrong with flammable cladding. Okay. And the market will sort it out. Oh dear, 300 people die in a fire. Yeah. And every building in the country has to be revised so the same thing can't happen in that country. And guess what? Slightly more ex- yeah, and it hasn't. I mean, they're still up there. Uh, that, that, yeah. that, that is the painful thing about that whole experience. Yeah, yeah. Still loads so of the, Gren- mm. the Grenfell disaster is an example of what happens when you don't have regulation. Yeah. On a much more trivial notice, uh, I, I, you know, because I have to use the internet massively with my work, as you know, and uh, I was getting sick of the. Um, Radio, the radio transmitted internet signal I was getting in my property in Waterloo, uh, you know, all of it, literally a kilometre from the, from apart from Big Ben, and uh, I wanted to get cable and found that there were the building which was built probably in the nineteen eighties or nineties I think had no provision, no internal provision for cable, so I'd have to 
as a as a tenant get uh, the companies to drill a hole through the bloody wall. Mm. I mean, if you put regulations saying you've got to have telecommunications conduits or conduits in general that pass signals from the outside to the inside, that regulation ends up saving money. No, no, but, also, but there should be a whole load of competition. There should be loads of people prepared to do that at a very low price because of competition. That's right. They're going drilling holes in walls all over the place. Yeah. Uh, again, it just doesn't work that well. The regulations can, in fact, in- inspire uh, competition. And that, again, like you, you can see that even if you, you look at things like um, uh, you know, the evolution of new racing uh, formats, car racing, you've now got electric car racing uh, regulations to put in. You can't have a petrol motor in your electric car. Sorry. Um, uh, this sort of thing then inspires innovation in terms of electric car design. So regulations can be creative to a certain point, putting pressure on to innovate, but I agree entirely, and I've certainly experienced it. You can be tied up and by overregulated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, here's here's another one which we hear time and time again uh, in discussion about rents and house prices. Artificially constraining rents, keeping the price down, uh, is going to make landlords less willing to rent out the property, which is going to reduce supply. I'm not really quite sure how. Are they going to just burn the rest of their properties? Uh, prices uh, won't be able to go up, of course, but quality will go down, is his argument. But as I say, what happens to the rest of the properties? Do they sell them? In which case, they have to sell them at a discounted price, which means someone will be able to buy them cheaper and won't need to rent. Well, again, if you look at the state of housing, probably one of the best countries in housing in the world is Singapore, and a huge part of that is state-owned. Yeah. Uh, and the UK used to have the same thing, the old council flat. The privatisation of that is a large part of what gave the private debt bubble that, uh, did, again, something Milton ignores, that drove private debt from 55% of GDP when Maggie was in uh, first deregulating the finance sector to 193%. Uh, during the financial crisis. But he's also and ignoring what happens to all those other houses. He's saying if yeah. you keep the price down, landlords are going to rent out less properties. Well, that's fine. But what happens to all the other properties? And he's, he doesn't talk about that. Mm, yeah, no, there's a very, a very partial, convincing partial logic. <laughs> I, I call economics a shell and pea game. You know, the whole idea of moving the shells around so you don't know which one the pea is underneath. Yeah. Uh, or hiding the pea on top of one of the shells and not telling anybody. That's the other story. So there's so much of this to um, conventional economic theory, and Milton was just the past master at, 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 at uh, pumping that stuff out. So he was confused about whether tax prevented inflation or encouraged inflation or had no influence. So uh, he wrote a paper during the war taxing to prevent inflation. So in other words, if you took more money out of people's pockets, then we'd have less inflation. But then he later argued that tax had no impact whatsoever. It was all to do with the supply of money. At what point was he right? Or in neither case? In in neither case. The tax one is actually fairly sensible. And that's, again, the modern monetary theory argument that what tax does, tax isn't necessary to fund government spending. Yeah. Well, well, early on, he was was influenced, wasn't he, by John Maynard Keynes? No, I don't know that he ever read Keynes. I mean, he said what he called Keynes certainly wasn't what Keynes wrote. Uh, but he was influenced by the Chicago plan. Yeah. So he was uh, he was one of the ones who came in favour of the Chicago plan, saying that the government should create all the money in the economy, not the private banks. Mm. And this is after the finance, this is after the Great Depression. So in some areas, reality did intrude into his mind. Well, on the Great Depression, he said, like most other periods of severe unemployment, uh, it was produced by government mismanagement rather than uh, any inherent uh, instability of the private economy. Uh, so it was all basically government spending is who is responsible. It creates runaway booms that will eventually lead to a bust. It's all the government's fault. 
No, in fact, that's that's more um, that's more um, Hayek's argument. What Milton actually argued was the that the crisis was caused by the central bank, the Federal Reserve in this case, not creating enough money in 29 and 30, 31 and 32, and he blamed uh, the Federal Reserve for cutting the money supply when it should have been expanding it. And that's the argument that Ben Bernanke came along and regurgitated as well. I thought he wanted to cut. I thought he wanted to reduce the money supply by a certain no, percentage he, every he year. A, I know that he's fully <laughs> politically palatable. Though. He said it has to be two or three percent increase was necessary. Right. And if you look at the stats, uh, there was a period twenty nine thirty where the Federal Reserve was um, not increasing the money supply as fast as Milton would argue. Uh, and this is what Bernanke used to blame the financial crisis on the on the, the 29 crisis, the Great Depression, on the Federal Reserve. Uh, ironically enough, he neglected the same issue in 2008, and the rate of growth of the money supply that the, the, the Federal Reserve can actually control, the M, M0 uh, level, was falling uh, as the crisis hit, and then he pumped it up to unheard of levels trying to, to prevent the crisis. So... This was a fallacy. Again, Milton ignored the role of private debt and private credit, and so did Bernanke. So you see Bernanke uh, arguing that private, he did, rejected Fisher's debt deflation theory of the Great Depression on the basis of, and I pretty much quote, um, absent, ex- uh, absent implausibly large differences in marginal propensities to spend, uh, debt deflation is a pure redistribution which should not have any significant macroeconomic impacts. And it, you look at it and you think, don't you realise that when people go bankrupt, they don't pay the back their debt? Mm. You know, even that point alone was missed by him. Um, so in this, this way I see Bernanke as the shadow of Milton Friedman. Um, and again, they were just putting about a, a totally false line. When you go back and look at the data, what they ignored is what caused the crisis. And in terms of his own data, when he, he, he wrote a book called The Monetary History of the United States of America, working with Anna Schwartz. And that's a lot of good empirical work in that, in, that, in that volume. But at the same time, he's trying to fudge the numbers so that the velocity of money appeared constant. Now, when you take a look at late, later research, looking at the same data and also looking at more recent data, the velocity is highly volatile falls during slumps, rises during booms, and has had a long downward trend ever since private debt um, hit, the, well, this isn't private debt, it was ever since Vocla drove inflation out of the economy by bumping up uh, rates to 17% back in the early 80s. And ever since then, the velocity of money has been falling from 3.5 to about 1 now. Yeah. So, you know, he's saying that's stable. Give me a break. Mm. So let's finish then. One last one. As we fact check Friedman, um, he wanted to introduce a flat rate tax, and his argument was that richer people didn't hang on to their money um, and spend less proportionally than poorer people did. Um, everyone basically spent the same amount of money. He said progressive tax is a retrogressive measure in terms of the impact on the economy. Everyone should be taxed at the same rate. Um, and he said, you know, people at the top rate pay lower tax anyway because of loopholes. So he, at the time, the tax rate in the, uh, when he was saying this, the tax rate in the United States went up to 70%. Of course, it's all come down now, but it went from 14 to 70. He reckoned if you took all of that income and averaged it out, you'd have a tax rate of 19%, and that would be better for the economy, although not so good for those people going from 14 to 19%, of course. Mm. No, again, I mean, I'm, I'm a critic of income tax for a range of reasons, mainly because when you look at money, you look at it from the point of view of saying taxation takes excess of money out of the economy to avoid inflation. 
uh, the money, money created by the government, um, then you have to say, well, what, what, what's an effective way of doing that so everybody pays, you know, the, the, the burden of taking the money out doesn't fall on one class rather than another. And uh, with income tax, nobody likes paying it and everybody's trying to evade it, but the only ones who successfully evade it are the wealthy. Yeah. So you get the situation where the poor end up paying, and the middle class in particular, who can't, can't afford to pay their way out of it, end up paying a far larger portion of what's actually taken out as tax than the, the upper class do. And that is a huge form of social uh, discord. So I'd rather go to a transactions tax, and that, again, would need to be a flat rate. Mm, uh, so and, you know, I'm not totally opposed to Friedman on that particular point. But the idea but, that the people at the top end are spending proportionally the same amount as people as poor people? Total crap. Yeah. Total crap, yeah. Mm. I mean, there's, what they're spending, what they, you know, they're buying financial assets with it. They're buying ownership of capital. Um you know, there's no Bo, Bozo is not spending, though he made a divorce case coming up pretty shortly. He's not spending the same proportion of his 160 billion uh, that a worker spends of their hundred. Mm. There's a far higher rate of turnover of the money, existing money for the working class than there is for the wealthy. So it's interesting. Most people would say, well, Friedman still has a big influence, but as we as we started out. Not with Donald Trump. Yeah, and this, this again, is because, the, again, it's, uh, you ended up in hell rather than heaven. So your policies to address what's going wrong aren't the same as they'd be if you actually lived up in the heaven that this is all going to talk about. I mean, if Milton Friedman's ideas have been right, there'd be uh, workers luxuriating uh, in America in service jobs because um, that's where they move because of the exchange rate differences. Um Prices would be lower for everything. Things would be more efficient than now with a state ownership, yada, yada, yada. That ain't the real world. And uh, when you come to living in the real world versus arguing for a fantasy world, uh, the fantasy, when you enact the fantasy and you get it, the heaven becomes your real world rather than hell, the fantasy doesn't look so great anymore. Well, yeah, and he was really a man based on theories, wasn't he? I mean, he wasn't a mathematician in any sense. He wasn't building complex models. He was a man who basically delivered theories and uh, perhaps didn't need to back him up with facts. Oh, he, he said there's a lot of, of, of faux mathematics in his papers, particularly often in quantity of money paper, all these calculations of the marginal utility of money and the marginal rate of substitution between money and other commodities and other goods and so on, uh, just hilarious, crappy, crappy stuff pretending to be mathematically sophisticated, but not a complex model. I don't think, I don't think there's ever a Milton Friedman macroeconomic model. Right, we'll look at uh, more economic models and how they relate to the climate next time because we're going to look at Nordhaus's uh, climate model and uh, have a go at debunking that. That's next time. Good to talk, Steve. Okay, mate. Talk to you again. Steve Keane, uh, The Economist, of course, debunking uh, much of the work of Milton Friedman, but not all of it. Uh, and that's it for the Debunking Economics podcast for this time. I'm Phil Dobby. Catch you again next week. Thanks for listening. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.